Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today we're going to take a deep dive into the topic of spiritual restlessness. My guest today is Casey Tigret, and Casey is the author of a recent book, The Gift of Restlessness, A Spirituality for Unsettled Seasons. You're going to really find this episode helpful. Casey, if you're not familiar with his work, is a theologian in residence at Parkview Christian Church. He's previously been a teaching pastor and has taught at Lincoln Christian University and Seminary, as well as Emanuel Christian Seminary, and he is an in-demand spiritual director. He works for Soul Care. He's also the host of the Restlessness is a Gift podcast and the author of Becoming Curious. Casey takes us in to the a really powerful conversation about our inner world and how we respond to really times of change, of deep anxiety, that sense of restlessness that we all get. And of course, we'll touch base on the famous quotation from St. Augustine that our hearts are restless until they find their rest essentially in God. Let's jump into the conversation. And again, if you find this helpful, please share it with your friends on social media, leave a review. And if I can be of any service, you can find all of my materials at brianrussellphd.com. Now let's listen into my conversation with Casey Tigret. Hi, Casey. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you. It's a gift. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm really happy to be with you. Well, I'm excited to talk about your latest book, uh, The Gift of Restlessness, a Spirituality for Unsettled season, Seasons. But before we uh, kind of jump into that, can and this is always a hard question, but can you kind of briefly give some of the kind of highlight reel or, you know, can be low light reel too, but to talk about some <laughs> of the, the key moments in your spiritual journey that you know, led you into you know, ministry, uh, spiritual direction, and, and an author of several books, including this, this latest one, The Gift of Restlessness. Sure, sure. Boy, I, I think one of the key points for me is growing up in a tradition. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. And so one of the big gifts that my younger days in church gave me was this understanding and desire to understand my my inner life and the disciplines that go along with that you know this focus on piety and connection with god and and that's something that has been a, a warm companion for me over the years and uh, by nature my personality is pretty introspective i um, have kind of a creative side that i've always enjoyed exploring and seeing that in light of my life with god in terms of preaching and teaching or creating things like podcasts or, or writing has always been sort of floating out there. So even in high school, as I was growing in, in the faith tradition and encountering being a teenage boy in America in the, in the early nineties, uh, wow, that was a long time ago. I said that out loud. That was a long time ago. Uh, we won't talk about that anyway. Well, well it makes uh, you feel better. Remember I grew up in the eighties. Th this so, is, so, this uh, is yeah, true. So, so I, yeah. now I don't feel so bad. Thank That's you right. for that. <laughs> But just knowing that uh, I recognized in me this this sense of restlessness uh, from an early age, and then as I got older and 
moved into young adulthood and adulthood and working in churches and pastoral settings and being married and having kids just every six weeks, six months or so, I just had this feeling come up that uh, things need to be changed. And then as a spiritual director and working with people in a pastoral setting, noticing the same kind of thing happening in people and tending to them, being with them in the middle of it, and just noticing how there was this irritated, unsettled moment in their life where they they felt like they couldn't go back to the way things used to be. So they, they couldn't go back to the, the circumstances before whatever the thing that propelled them into that restless moment was, but they had no idea what it meant to move forward. And so a lot of the life and work that I've been able to have and do has been around examining these very small slivers of who we are as people and how that integrates with our life with God. Because if it's human, if it's if it's native to us as human beings, then it's a spiritual thing. We've been inbreathed by God from Genesis to now. And so anything that we do in this skin is a, is both a human and a spiritual thing. And so restlessness is a very human thing. Uh, if I didn't believe that before the book, I definitely know it now after having talked to people about it. But it's also a deeply spiritual thing. It's a, it's a place where we interact with the presence of God when we're unsettled, when we're irritated, when we can't go back, but we have no idea what forward looks like. So, so other than that, I mean, there have been other big big portions of my life. My parents divorced after 19 years of marriage back in 1999, uh, getting married and, and discovering a, a different way of family with my wife's family, uh, journeying with my daughter through some challenges of being a teenager and becoming a spiritual director and serving in churches and seeing where the, the life of formation happens in the local church. So there's all kinds of these pieces that in this book, I feel like this book has been a place where all of this stuff really came together. So neuroscience and psychology and theology, and then just stories and, and this, you know, this global pandemic that happened not too long ago, that makes an appearance in the book and has its own character arc too. So uh, that that sounds more like highlights. So uh, yeah, but that's that's really what comes together in in this book and uh, what I'm still trying to figure out and live through and piece together on my own as well. Now, and I appreciated the way that you wrote the book. You used a lot of uh, I think really well chosen kind of personal stories that personalized you as the author, and then you you know that's not all just about you. Weave in other places that people that you've learned from and, you know, just other kind of typical court illustrations make it really readable. So before we actually get into the restlessness uh, motif and talk through that, can you just share a little bit about what you've, about your writing style, meaning your habits that go behind that? Cause you've done, you've done multiple books and uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff here at the end, or you can you know toss them out right as, as, as you want to, but you know, you've written yeah. several books now while you've been, you know, you're not an academic gets to sit around and get sabbaticals and stuff. So you've done this in the midst of a, ha having a family, having children, um, yeah. ministry, uh, presumably doing spiritual direction school on top of the other education you've done. So like, you know, talk about your habits and how you've been able to, you know, be, be productive um, and, you know, stayed uh, reasonably sane in the process. Yeah. Well, that last part's fun. Yeah. <laughs> reasonably sane. <laughs> 
I I think one of the great gifts of being a person who has been involved in the conversation and teaching around spiritual formation is that it's given me a sensitivity to practices and habits and how those things can be very powerful if they don't become, you know, stale and rote, if they stay alive and they stay vibrant, uh, but also if we stay committed to them. And so when I really in set intent back in probably, um, gosh, would have been about 2014 or 15, I really made a concerted effort to start writing well. And it was in the encouragement of a friend and of a podcast that I'd heard that you just laid down this challenge about writing and said, if you, you know, if you'd write so many words a day after 40 days, you would have this, this amount of, and it's like, oh, it's, you know, I'll try that. It's an experiment. And that turned into a helpful practice, just committing to the work, um, just committing to putting keys to digital paper and and seeing what came up. Because the first book that I ever wrote called Becoming Curious really started as a project where I had been writing a bunch of different things and this same theme kept coming up. So I kept going to the well, I kept going back to my computer. And for me, the other part of that is when it happens. So this is the bonkers part of my life. And I tell people this, and I, I, I don't say this in the sense that I really enjoy it, but uh, I started getting up around four or 4.30 in the morning just because that's when I knew I could control mm -hmm. my, my circumstances. And so being able to spend, give myself an hour or 1500 words, whichever one came first. And some days it would be an hour and there would be 500 terrible words on the page and those things would go bye-bye. Uh, and sometimes it would be, I hit the hour and we're at 25, you know, it just depended, but being able to give that time and be graceful to myself and say, this may be really good and productive, or you may just fight through and may not use any of this, but it's the work is the point. And so I was able to start cultivating that practice early on. And, uh, for the other book that I wrote on, um, called the practice of remembering it's actually being re-released this coming december um that had more of a sense of a topic to it i had already i'd already felt that this concept of memories that memories make us who we are and they're key to our life with god uh, that had already started to pop up and so for that book there was a lot more research because we were doing talk i was talking a lot more about things that went on in our brain so i'm not a neuroscientist at all uh, but I play one on TV or in, at least in the book, um, I was able to do some research there, but it was a lot more focus on trying to understand some concepts that I didn't understand and begin to fuse them together with things that I did. And so the discipline was the same, but the focus was really different and how, how it got executed. And so I say all that, and then bring this third book, uh, kind of happened in a time of lockdown and I actually wrote a version of this book in full and then pitched it and no publishers were interested. And I thought, well, I'm just going to put this away and we'll come back to it. And then little did I know I would come back to it less than a year later with a bunch of different stories and different mm -hmm. circumstances. And so it came up as a result of me trying to work through some things. I think all books in one way or another are people trying to make sense of something. They might be trying to make sense of their own life or the way God has interacted with them over time. 
And so uh, it it was a wonderful it was a wonderful process. It was a terrible process. Uh, I I had COVID in the later stages of editing, and so trying to make something hang together when you have this brain fog, uh, and I couldn't remember like my own phone number, but supposedly I was supposed to have this whole book somehow fit together. Uh, so I say all that to say a writing discipline of showing up has been really helpful to me. And yet the grace to know how that needs to change from book to book, from time of life to time of life, uh, that's almost as critical as the discipline of sticking with it. Um, the other thing is just, I, I think, doing writing, whether it's articles or a blog or a book, in the course of the other parts of your life, it seems like a lot. Like you have, a, I have this full-time job and now I'm trying to write a book. But the the job actually becomes a place, if we're willing to pay attention to it, that is a tremendous source of insights and illustrations and words. People will say things. I remember, especially in the second book, people would say something. And because I was in that brain space, because I was thinking about memories, uh, they would say something and I would say, oh, that's important. If I wasn't here with you at this lunch or at this coffee or at this meeting, I wouldn't have heard that. And so this actually contributes to that. So being able to see, to try and balance the things that we do and see how they influence each other and everything is connected, everything belongs. I mean, it's all it's all part of one big whole. So, so I would say that um, that's my discipline has really been to the words and the time, but also to the grace of being able to be fluid and and let things change when they need to. Uh, to say all that, I say, I haven't written anything in a good long while because <laughs> the other part of writing practice for me is I, when I don't have anything to say, I try not to write. Um, I feel like there is a time of letting the field lay fallow for a while and letting yourself kind of regenerate. It's a, it's, it can be a brutal process and, uh, letting some things get built back up afterwards is really important. No, that's good. And I actually really appreciate the the last thing that you said. There's just a lot of wisdom and I mean, the, the whole process. I mean, every little bit, but I love everything. I hope everybody listens to what the last thing you just said, because there's the, some place when you just don't have something to say. Be curious about that, right? <laughs> just let it, <laughs> yeah. And let it be. So that's good. Well, well, let's get back to this, to, to the gift of, of restlessness. Um, mm. And I think before we just get any deeper, what do you, what do you mean by restlessness in the book? Uh, and then you, all, of course, you use the famous quote from Augustine, but I'm guessing, I don't know if that's the, where the source of the title was, but talk a little bit about how you define restlessness for the book and, um, and then, and how, what does it, how does that relate to uh, Augustine and Confessions when he talks about finding rest in God ultimately? Yeah. Well, the book started, the concept really was sourced out of my own my own life and experience and my life with others and noticing restlessness and always feeling like I need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. um, and it was Augustine that I think created, at least from a faith standpoint, kind of created our feeling about restlessness, which is it's something that happens before we get our act together. Um, the quote, as the quote has been said, in different ways, but our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And that has that sense of transactionality to it. Like, And then once we rest in you, restlessness is gone. However, I've met a ton of people who it that is not how they experience restlessness at all, but it's more of a sense 
I think Augustine is probably, if he were here today, would be like, I did, that's not, guys, that's not what I was going after at all. Uh, it's not like a, a check mark that you've moved out of this space. Uh, but I think restlessness is, it's such a human experience that there has to be something to it where it can be good. Uh, and maybe that was just me trying to redeem what I was already experiencing. But the more I started to look at scripture, the more I looked at stories of people that I was with and theologians, and uh, is that much of what happens and much of people's encounter with God happens in a season where they are in between, where they can't go back and they can't go forward. Moses and Exodus is in a season between having a, fa a family and a home and having an identity, you know, the the moment he meets the burning bush, he has no idea who he is. I've lost my Egyptian family. I've lost my Hebrew family. I married this woman out here in the middle of nowhere, and now I'm working for her dad raising sheep. What is happening here? And it's almost as if he needed that moment for for Yahweh to step in and say, "I know who you are. You needed to be here so I could help you understand who you really are." So, and I saw that play out in people's lives. So, for restlessness, for me, was always it's that irritated, unsettled season where you can't go back and you can't go forward. And so if that's the case, if we're cemented in this present tense, uh, is God present there? And if so, how? And what are the questions that we might be wrestling with in the middle spaces that bring us there and that keep us there? And what does it look like for us to process that? Uh, life as a spiritual director, I, I was always in that in-between with people. The practices that used to give me life are dry, but I have no idea what what new what should I pick up? What should I do next? And just really welcoming people to stay right there. Like, okay, before we make another plan, before I suggest to you another book or another practice, can we just stay here for a minute and talk about this dryness? Let's talk about this aridity that you're feeling. Where where is it coming from? If God is here with you in the midst of that, what would that look like? What would that mean? And so that's that's really where that idea of the gift of restlessness came, is that restlessness is a gift if we realize the space in between actually can be really fruitful. Um, we don't have to like it. I don't know anybody who likes it. I don't know anybody who goes looking for it. But if we're there and we, we know we can't go forward, then maybe embracing that uh, is the thing that we need most in that moment. So that's that's really where the energy for the book came from and uh, trying to discover what questions people are asking and what questions I was asking myself in those in those times. And before I ask the, the next question, I just want to make an observation and just for everybody listening to it, because you just heard Casey ask a bunch of questions about this feelings of restless, <laughs> restlessness. And so and in your book, one of the things that I appreciated it, appreciated much. And maybe it's my age or whatever. Like when I was younger, I would say I would have preferred answers. And I might've even been annoyed by all the questions at some level. It's like, <laughs> Jesus is the answer. And at some level as I've gotten older, I'm like, well, maybe Jesus is the question. And then it just yeah. kind of goes back and forth. But I would say, you know, you, you, one of your real gifts, uh, and it's a gift that shows up in this book, is the ability to just ask really penetrating questions. And so one of the things I loved about the gift of restlessness is each chapter, you have a theme and then tell stories, you do some biblical stuff, some personal anecdotes and those sort of things, but it all comes back. And then you essentially the book really, it's at the end, it's actually a bunch of questions at the end of each chapter that allows you to go even deeper without giving answers. So can can you talk a little bit about 
the role of questions play in our spiritual life, which I guess that's something behind the whole book itself. But would you just make a couple comments on that? And when and how long or what did it take for you to be, uh, begin to appreciate questions yourself? Sure. I think there are three things that came together that come together for that. Uh, one is I've always been that person who asked the second question. Like some people like to ask the first one and then they get their answer and then they move on. I'm the one who then asks, yeah, but what about this? And from school to life to churches that I've worked in, uh, I've always been the person to ask the second question and people who ask the second question, they're not always the most popular <laughs> because you're digging a little bit. And sometimes that can be seen as like being a contrarian. Sometimes it can be seen as not having trust or confidence, whatever. So that's one piece. It's it's something that I've found in me. The second is the first book I wrote, Becoming Curious, was really born out of the fact that I encountered so many people who were asking questions and receiving answers, and you could just see it in their eyes. They would ask a question, someone would answer it, and there was this look of dissatisfaction. Like, that's fine. The answer is fine, and it's not bad, and it was well-reasoned and well-thought-out. But there's something about it that doesn't quite reach where I, where I was, what I was looking for when I asked that. And so it forced me to start looking at Scripture and just seeing all the questions that Jesus asked. And how many times he answered a question with a question and how I would imagine how frustrating that could have been for some people, but also how it was just a way of, of shaking status quo, a way of shaking loose some old, frozen, seemingly impenetrable pieces that needed to be re-examined. And so being able to help people do that. Uh, the third piece is just the nature of me being a spiritual director is our job is I tell people the irony of spiritual direction is it's not very directive. Like we're not going to tell you a whole lot of stuff to do. What we will do is try to ask the right questions and position ourselves to listen well to the spirit, to ask the kinds of questions that help you find the wisdom that's already, it's already sort of simmering right below the surface. And you know it's there, but you just need someone to ask you this one question that might really let this thing loose and then give you the space to give unvarnished answers and, and unedited feedback, a safe place to do that. So, so that's really, I've carried that with me my whole life, but especially since 2015, when I started doing spiritual direction more intently is I see, I start to see everything through that lens and what's the next best question. And, and I even said, you know, I see that sometimes in, in, in teaching about formation and discipleship, I look at Jesus sometimes and think Jesus was great about the what. Wasn't always so great about the how. Like there was a lot of content and, and responses that he gave. But I think about the passage about, you know, love your enemies. And I have to imagine somebody raised their hand at that point and said, okay, so so how do we do that? How do we love our enemies? And I I could see Jesus answering a question with a question saying, Well, who are your enemies? Do you know them? What do you know about them? What would it look like to love them? Are you willing to fail in loving them in order to learn how to do it well? So I'm trying, I guess, in some ways to model that in my own life and say, we, there's a lot of what. There's plenty. I mean, Google provides us with all the what we want. The question is how. And 
how do we get to the wisdom behind that? So, so that's where a lot of that curiosity and questioning really comes from. And um, I found it to be helpful for myself. Uh, I'm grateful to hear that it was helpful for you as you're reading this. No, and I'll just say for anybody listening, if they want to pick up your book, I, I'll, I'm always looking for good questions to journal about, uh, ways to go a little deeper in my own journey. And you know, I can and again, I, I read your book rather quickly just so I could be prepared for the podcast. But I mean, I'm going to go back and look at some of those questions and lay them out in the my own journals. I journal almost every single day, and it's going to mm. freshen things up. So uh, Casey's book could really help us go. Um, one of my favorite things is to go deeper. This is a deep dive spirituality conversation <laughs> podcast. So that's the, that's the whole point. How can we go a little deeper, open ourselves a little bit more up to the, uh, open ourselves up a little bit more to the work of the spirit. Uh, I know you're Nazarene too. So, I mean, I, you know, this is underneath this is a, uh, to me, the, my favorite part about being in the Wesleyan family is entire sanctification. And I just mm -hmm. uh, see a lot of this, the questions that we can ask as, um, ways to God to chisel around what sometimes our ancestors or our forefathers would have called the infirmities, which usually gives people an excuse to let not let God take care of the real junk in our lives. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, th I think your book is a kind of a holiness book in its own way, just to encourage readers that use that kind of language that are listening. There's some good stuff here. Yeah. Now, the well, one the thing, odd thing, the odd thing about that is, uh, I haven't, I haven't been a part of the Nazarene tradition for a while, Okay, but that. my, my life up to this point, what I've, what I've started to notice recently, and I don't know if this, I hope this, I hope, I hope this is a maturity thing. Um, I don't know that for sure, but I hope it is, is being able to include a lot of these pieces of the places where I've been and the traditions that I've been a part of. So that was a huge, my time in the Church of the Nazarene was a huge, beautiful part of my life. The time that I've spent since probably 2004 or five in independent Christian churches, which is where I've been now, Restoration Movement, has given me another piece to it. And so I really resonate with uh, the idea, Richard Foster's book, Streams of Living Water. I really resonate with that idea that there are all these streams that feed into really one streams of traditions of christian traditions expressions of following jesus that all sort of feed so there's there's part of my life as a as a nazarene in the south where we were way more the charismatic like pre-split nazarene kind of kind of folks and so there was a lot more of that i spent some time in college in some liturgical churches so there was that piece so there are all these pieces that kind of come together. And I, I love the idea that this feels like a holiness book because one thing that was always so powerful to me uh, about my my Nazarene upbringing was just the role of testimony, how much of a part of our worship that was, that story. Um, and I think that would more than anything help prepare me for the fact that much of spiritual formation is story. I mean, there's doctrine, there's teaching, there's all of that. But so much of it is just is story, is it the evolution of a person into the people God designed them to be here and now. And uh, so that's been really, really fruitful. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I love it. Um, your book, you, I thought this was brilliant. I'm always fascinated in how well people can hold books together. Mine just sort of, uh, I always cut and paste and scissor things together and mix it up, throw it on the floor and mix it all up and it comes out. But you, you actually have this, I mean, again, I, I told you before, I actually think it's just a brilliant framework. I, you know, you have this, you, you, it's not a metaphor. It's actually, you take the Lord's prayer. Yeah. 
and you unpack everything, you know, essentially line by line through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's a gift from the Lord to you, but uh, if you were going to take the Casey part of that equation, uh, like, yeah. how, where, how, where did that come from? Because I loved it. Yeah, I, I I think that curiosity part of me has always taken that lens to the Bible and just been curious about different things, and especially with the Lord's Prayer. And there's a there are a lot of there's obviously scads of scholars who've written on it, but whenever I heard the Lord's Prayer and I put it in context, and the disciples are like, "Teach us to pray," and He says, "This is how you should pray." It's a very cultivated prayer, mm -hmm. like it's very specific. It's got some very specific inclusions. And then there's some stuff that just isn't even in there. Like, so this is how you should pray. And it's very tight. And so, you know, if you're Jesus and you're instructing people on how you should pray, I would think you'd want like 30 chapters on that. Like, mm -hmm. let's exhaust this topic. But then I started to look at the prayer itself and thought, as human beings, let's just look at it from this perspective of people without any sort of religious conviction. And and as a side note, that's one of the interesting things about this book is that I've had a, such a strong response from people who are not people of faith. Mm. And for whatever reason, there was something about this that resonated with them. And I think it's because the Lord's Prayer is such a human prayer. When I looked at it, I thought, let's imagine that Jesus was responding to something in each line. Like, why would he choose that particular thing to include? And so as I looked at it, I thought, well, our father is a question, that our idea, that's a question of belonging. Like, where do I fit? This idea of let your kingdom come. Kingdom is like a, it's a reason for being around. It's a purpose. So do I have a purpose? That's a very human question. Give us today our daily bread is a very like, contentment question. Is there enough? Do I have enough for today? And as I begin to work down through the prayer, and these are all headings for each of the chapters, like you mentioned, as I work through the prayer, I begin to see each line, each stanza as kind of a response, not kind of, as a response to the deep human questions that my friends who were mired in restlessness were, were working through. And variations on a theme, you know, with details, or you add in the context of our own life, but ultimately big categories is there enough? Can the world be mended? Do I have a purpose? Do I belong somewhere? Can I be safe? Uh, can I be rescued when I get out over my skis and out into the darkness? Those were all there. And so being able to set up our thinking about restlessness, when we can't go back and we can't go forward, we're usually somewhere in between wrestling with one of the or more of those questions. I've lost the job that I thought was going to carry me through. I have no idea what's going to happen next. Is there going to be enough for me? How do I stay here in this present moment, not being able to change things, at least not as it stands? And is God present here? And what am I learning? Who am I becoming? What's changing in me? Um, so being able to wrestle with contentment, with forgiveness, with protection, um, those, were, those were all such huge human native human concepts that I thought this is, this seems really important. And so just letting it become the structure of the book, which is, was a very interesting discussion with the publishers because they said, well, this is a, this isn't a look, a book on the Lord's prayer. And I said, no, not really. 
but not not about <laughs> yeah it's there it's the it's the skeleton it isn't another book addressing and teaching on the lord's prayer but that prayer undergirds and just filters through so much of who we are and what we do let's make that let's make that the basis for the conversation that's good yeah and again i'm not we don't want you to give the whole book away in our interview but i would like to just touch around two things and then we'll kind of uh, be respectful of your time and go to the kind of final stuff but you start with our father and you make that a question of um of belonging yeah and um you know and one of the questions that you start with you talk about you you ask questions of imaging um mm -hmm. you know how do you imagine God and essentially, how does God imagine you? I think, or how do you, or something like those are basically the questions. So why? No, actually, no. Yeah, talk about it. Why do you? Why do you start there? And and I think as a, I'll just throw the follow up question in there too. Um, and I am sort of serious on this. Like, give some examples of what you would consider to be a healthy answer to what is a good image for God. And this isn't a gotcha question. This is genuine curiosity versus an unhealthy answer to mm. how a person images God. Because if you're a director, there probably are better and not so good versions of uh, of God. So just, just talk a little bit about that as, as, as just the starting place to deal with restlessness, how we image God. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it. No, it's good. It's good. I I love the quote that's often attributed to A.W. Tozer that says, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I love it because it's great and it's I can remember it. <laughs> I also love it because when I'm with people in various forms of faith crisis a lot of times it has to do with the way that they see god if they see god as fickle as easily disturbed as not confident and comfortable in god's own skin as waiting to punish uh, as James Brian Smith, my friend, says, he talks about the scary shaming narrative. They have they have difficulty when they feel like they're in a season where their faith is changing, and some of that comes from teaching about that God is unchangeable, which I which I believe God is unchangeable. But we're trying to talk about a thing that we can't understand, and so. The only way we're able to do that is to use metaphors and images, and those images are wonderful, and they move it. I mean, I grew up with images of God that were such a blessing and so helpful, and one day I came to the end of those. Um, there are people who grow up with this image of God as warrior, and that's an image that carries them through that god will fight for them and god will but there comes a point in time where you do come into contact with the sort of nonviolent posture of jesus and you go hey wait a minute so are our, our father and son at odds on this or how does is is god warrior in that sense and you kind of come to the end of that and so the way i talk about it in the book is that the telescope is not the stars 
and we mistake the telescope for the stars when we fight for the metaphor or the image of God more than fighting for the evolving understanding of God. And so that's a lot of the work that I've been doing in my own life and a lot of the work that I've been doing with people. Um, it started really in student ministry when I had uh, girls, teenage girls in my group who were very uncomfortable with this idea of God as father. And it had a lot to do with what they thought of their own earthly father. And so just having to say that you don't have to see God in that way. Um, that is a metaphor that helps us understand who God is. It's very relevant to a time in which father meant source, and there was a lot of genealogy attached to that. Uh, but there are other images. And so even in the book, I, I use I use the phrase the divine to talk about God. And using that phrase is something that I've come to over time because even sometimes the word carries some weight that it it doesn't necessarily deserve or that it it can't necessarily bear completely. And so that's the shift is that sometimes in our restlessness, we are struggling with the idea of, can I really let go? Can I let go of this image and move into this next stage? Like, I know I can't go back for these, for the people that I was talking to, I cannot go back to calling Godfather. I just can't, I can't do it. But what do I replace it with? Like, what's the next thing? And so just being able to be there and be cared for and know that God, whatever image or metaphor you might use, that God is with you. Um, and that that sort of sets the stage for the idea of what is a healthy or unhealthy. Um, I think an unhealthy image of God is one that we cannot let go of. So if there's an image of God that we have that we we simply can't let go of, we can't release, we can't move beyond or reimagine, that is an unhealthy because that really puts us in the spot where it's the metaphor or the image that matters more than the reality. If God is truly God, we're never going to be able to really understand them, God, that being. Uh, yep. So we're always going to be getting just close enough. And so allowing ourselves the freedom to do that um, is huge. And it trickles down a bit too. Um, is God the God who demands blank from me? Maybe, but if we can't move past that and say, maybe at this stage of life, God is asking something different from me. Um, I think that's an unhealthy place to be. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, yeah it actually, it actually does. And and this is a pure curiosity question that, um, again, it, I'd love to hear your wisdom on as a seasoned person. And, uh, mm -hmm. Like if you're going to ask me, and I'm not asking you to do spiritual direction, I mean necessarily right now. But if if I if if you fly, because I was thinking I read the book. Okay, what's my image of God? And the first thing that I came up with, and this is after a lot of centering prayer and just sitting in silence in my own thing, is I would say, God is no thing. But if you're going to press me for an image, the only image that I hold on to at all is Jesus on the cross, period, mm. and just leave it at that. And, and again, there's no, there's no judgment back on anything that you just said. And I just noticed like, um, and maybe this is too much Thomas Merton or just... Um, it's no such uh, thing. Or No you know, such thing yeah. is too much Thomas Merton. <laughs> you know, like, and again, uh, again, like when I thought that I lost my faith, I confessed to one of my best friends who's a colleague at Asbury, and I said, I think I'm an atheist and in mm -hmm. in this and my friend just laughed at me 
and he and, and this is on another podcast so this is no open confession so don't don't get too uncomfortable because so I, wow, I have said this right. publicly but he <laughs> laughed at me and it made me mad a little bit because um because i and he said you're not an atheist you're just the most honest person i've ever met and all that's happening is god is purging everything inside of you that isn't him you know and, and again i'm not claiming some spiritual wow. victory or anything at all but if like at some level the image to me is just blackness he resides in darkness and it's not evil darkness it's just there's nothing there or you could say pure light i mean you've read a yeah. lot of the mystics and stuff so i'm just curious and again this is beyond your book uh, but i think that space that way of unknowing the cloud of unknowing all that kind of stuff sets the stage for really what you're talking about so i'd just be curious a little bit if maybe if you don't mind sharing a little bit about maybe some of your contemplative journey and even just respond to what i said without you know i'm not looking for necessarily direction but i'm just curious what that sounded like coming back to you given the because i've been restless a lot i get i loved your book actually it really helped yeah. it helped my soul as i read it i want to go back through the questions so like you know what did you kind of hear and yeah So often, I think we come to images about God in trying to reckon with what we see right in front of us. Yeah, which is, which is, I think, a, a piece of this restless idea because being when you are stuck in the present tense, you can't go back, you can't go forward. Yeah, all you're really dealing with is what's about four feet in front of your face, spiritually speaking, and so we're we're looking for images and pictures of God that will meet us in that moment. And sometimes it's the ones we've always had. Sometimes it's the ones that we have heard before and felt uncomfortable with, but now become much more comfortable. You know, I've walked with people who have really embraced a maternal idea of God, God as mother. And it's because they're in a space where there's a kind of love that they're experiencing from God that they're like, I don't know how, I don't know what else to call this. Or they've come to that point in life where they realize that much of our life is holding two things that are in, you know, diametrically opposed, two things that are intentional, holding them together at the same time. And, and I think Jesus was always welcoming us towards this. Uh, the idea of my father sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So be telos be complete like he's complete i was confused why no one else was just completely messed up by that idea because it doesn't fit the whole you know cowboy in black and cowboy in white that we often see as the as the setup for the bible it's this like yeah yeah good and bad farmers both get blessed and then almost like there's a wink and a question behind it which is can you be okay with that can you live with that tension? And so being able to hold those two things. So the idea, I love what you're saying. I'm, I'm a tremendous fan of Meister Eckhart, a German mystic, uh, who didn't live in a cloister, who lived with people in Paris. Like he was a grounded person, despite the fact that his writing just soars. He always was talking about how God is the, the no thing. God is a thing, but not. And holding those two things in tension, that God can be known, but God is unknown, that God is in Jesus, but beyond Jesus. And so I just, I feel like our images of God have to grow more and more in capacity 
and they will as long as we allow them to speak to the present moment. The other thing that I, I feel about our images of God is it almost, I'm not saying they don't matter, but I would say if the image of God we carry is not making us kinder, mm. more gracious to ourselves and others, more thoughtful, slower to speak, take all of those ethical teachings that we find in the New Testament. If our image of God is not moving us at light speed towards those things, I don't know that it's something we can handle. And being kind is learning how to hold things in tension because to be kind to people who are not kind to you is about both speaking and advocating for yourself and also being able to be sacrificial and release. So it's holding those two things in tension. So those images of God should put us in a place and progressively so where we are trying to hold together two things that don't necessarily fit and also trying to speak to the moment that's right in front of us. So if that's coming out of deconstruction and going, I think, I think God is a no thing. Um, if we come out of it and say, I, I see God as mother these days, God as creator, God as source, God as artist, God as the grand creative, God is, as Paul Tillich says, the ground of being, uh, which is Meister Eckhart as well, the ground. Uh, all of these pictures and images, they get us right up to the edge. And I think if that's that image for you is moving you towards grace and kindness, the fruits of the spirit, the ethical teachings, then I think it's probably a healthy image for you. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, one other question, if you have a couple more minutes. Um, I do, yeah. Yeah, just uh, uh, again, books, good stuff. If you guys want to do a deep dive, check out uh, The Gift of Restlessness. There's good stuff in here. When you talk about, um, I loved your language. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it, it's a non-anxious posture of contentment. And I'm like, mm. yes. <laughs> that's that's that, that, that's kind of what we all want. And you know, matter of fact, I mean, this I, I literally just preached I preached four weeks in a row for a church, and we did Phili I preached through Philippians, and so literally yesterday we just did Philippians four four to seven, where you know Paul talks essentially uh, about um, you know rejoice in the Lord always, um, in 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 the peace that passes understanding. That whole passage. And then later in four, he talks about I've got the secret of contentment, which obviously is knowing Jesus Christ in this kind of. I would say mystical way that Paul talks about back in chapter three of Philippians, but uh, non-anxious posture of contentment. Um, how would you know that you had that? And just from you, you said, I loved earlier, we talked about not just the what, but the how. Um, I'm guessing that you're not suggesting people can live that a hundred percent of the time. And if you are, I want the sauce. I was going to say that. Uh, <laughs> and so like, if somebody's listening to that and a lot of people probably like me, I'm a classic three Enneagram and, and I, you know, I just like to go after stuff. Um, and I've had to learn to turn the volume down on that. So it's like, okay, I want that, but if I want it too much, I'm just grasping for it. So how do you lean into um, that posture for even 10% of the time. Sure. Or maybe it's 1%. You can lowball it all you want, but I'm just curious, you know, because I love that phrase, non-anxious posture of contentment, because I think everybody would say, give me that. Yeah. At least at some point in their life, they're going to say, give me that. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And and I do feel like that is that is incremental. Like that's something we move towards a step at a time. And there there will be failures and 
and then like half successes that are not really failures, but they're like, eh, it's close enough. Uh, I think the idea, the reason I like the word posture is that posture is really about how we look at things. And every every faith tradition, every teacher that I've read in every faith tradition has the same sense that the way we the way we envision things, the lens that we use to look through at our life, and I would say from a Christian perspective, the way we look at loving God, self and others is always going to be the place where everything rises and falls. Uh, we begin with the renewing of our mind so that we can see things through the lens of what God is up to, a little remix of Romans 12. So posture really is less, is is the beginning of that how, uh, and it's learning how how do we look at things like what do I have or not have in a way that isn't anxious and non-anxious being the sense of I'm not anticipating consequences that may or may not be true. I don't think non-anxious means that we don't have concerns, um, concerns for making our rent or paying our bills or things like that. Anxiety is is fear overblown. It's it's moved out to the edges where we're creating our own fantasies about how bad things could be. And so a non-anxious posture sees the world in sense of this is reality, these are the real problems, and this is fantasy. And so God is going to care for me in the reality, and I am going to let the fantasy drift a bit. And so practically, uh, some of the ways that begins is how do we think about our spending and our budgeting, for example? We'll just start with money because that tends to get to the heart really fast. Do I have a do I have a non anxious posture towards my budget? Um, the way you know if that's happening is the level of generosity you're able to experience. The people I know who are the most generous are usually the folks who worry the least or have the least amount of anxiety about what's going to happen next. And they aren't always wealthy. Um, you know, it's the idea of if I could just make a little bit more, I would worry less about giving things away, which isn't true. It's never right. been true. Uh, but it becomes a spot of, I know that there will be enough. So if there's enough, then I'm free to give this away. So whether my wife and I have taken this perspective towards stuff, uh, somehow we both inherited, and I, I talk a little bit about my wife's family, but uh, we inherited this idea that there always has to be double too deep of everything. Uh, my wife grew up in a family of a steel worker, her grandfather, and her grandmother used to buy two of everything uh, when they had money because strikes would come and there wouldn't be enough. And so that just got passed down from generation to generation until my wife one day, I was like, why do we have two of each of these? She's like, huh, I don't really know. Uh, but it was always the anticipation. And so far, to such an extent that it got passed down to where even without that, like even without the idea that, you know, my husband's not a steel worker and there's probably not imminent layoffs, she still had that same practice. And so the more we can be free and generous with the, the things we have and simplify the things we have, uh, the spaces we live in, that's when we know we're taking more of a non-anxious posture because all kinds of things come with that. Generosity is one. Uh, I find that people who have an open-handed approach to the things they own are usually kinder. Um, they're usually less hurried, uh, usually less irritated by little things. 
Um, I'm sure there's some psychology on this, but I think just the presence of stuff around us affects the way that we think about just about everything. Um, these are spaces, our spaces form us spiritually just as much as any practices or churches we attend. So, yeah, so I would say that's a starting point is just to notice how do we look at what we have or don't have and what do we notice as far as the characteristics of our life that come out of that? That's so good. And uh, for everybody listening, that's Casey writes just like he speaks and you get these little concrete, specific, actionable things that's usually questioned, but it'll take you there. So I, I love that answer. So just to be fair to your time, first, thank you for uh, being uh, my guest today. Um, and these are, again, these questions may take a few minutes, but these are not, I'm not looking for super long answers. So there's just kind of rapid fire sort of things. I'm curious, actually really curious how I can ask this next one, since you already kind of said that with your writing tactics that you'll just take a pause, but I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, is there something in the works? Is there like a book that you're maybe you're afraid to write or that you feel like you must write still at this point in your life? Hmm. Uh, I think, I feel like that answer is always going to be yes uh, to all of it. I, I <laughs> so I'll, I'll talk about the ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's been an idea in my head to write a screenplay for some time. Cool. And to do something different. And it may just be a passion project that I do and go, well, that was fun. And let's do something else. Uh, right now, time is a constraint for that. So we're, we're not thinking about that yet. But I have been thinking a lot about the topic of kindness. And especially from the perspective of the connection between kindness and as, a, as good news. Mm-hmm. And so that may be something that I want to write on. I want to write on later down the road. I think I've always had in mind to write a memoir, but if there's anything that is, if there's any idea in the world that feels so selfish and so self-effacing and like, not self-effacing, but so like self-aggrandizing, like it, I'm just so convinced everybody is going to want to know about this story of my, you know, pick an era in my life. Uh, so I think there's also a little bit of fear that goes along with that. Uh, to write a memoir is to write about people who you love and to tell the truth about them because no one would believe you if you said it was all perfect. So there's actually a wonderful writer uh, named Leslie Leland Fields. Mm. And she wrote a book called Your Story Matters. And she has, I think, two whole chapters in there about how when you write a memoir to talk to the people that you are going to say things about that they may not be okay with. Mm. So I don't know that I'm going to do that, but that's definitely out there. The kindness is out there. Screenplay might be out there. Uh, but for the for the time being, we're we're letting the crops, we're letting the crops lie for a little bit and let the edges get picked over and do some other things. But yeah, so those are a couple of things that are out there. I love that. Um, yeah, and also, you know, you're a spiritual director, and obviously, you have a lot of kind of depth. It's obvious the way you talk and respond and have thought through things. So, what kind of keeps you grounded? You know, you don't have to be any more detailed than you feel comfortable. But like, what's what's your rule of life if you use that kind of language, or what are your habits that allow you to stay, you know, reasonably healthy, connected to God, so that you can do the work that the that the Lord's called you to do? Yeah. Uh, over the years, early mornings have always been for me, whatever happens, just that container of being able to start there. Uh, scripture is a piece of that. Reading is definitely a piece of that. Prayer has changed over the years from 
more talking to more listening uh, to the point of just being quiet uh, for 10 minutes or so and just listening to what might be going on. Uh, physical exercise of some kind is a part of it too. Um, I work with an organization called Soul Care and we do a lot of spiritual formation work and soul health work with leaders. And one of the places I find that gets most neglected and isn't connected readily to a person's soul health is how are they doing physically. And so knowing my medical history, knowing my family history and the the <laughs> the jewels that have been passed down <laughs> in my body, uh, being able to take care of that has been very important. Um, intentional time with my family is key. Uh, I currently work from home, so we get a lot of time together, which has been a blessing. So those are some keystone practices. Uh, the other that has been had a really uh, powerful impact on my life is the practice of walking a labyrinth. Mm. Um, and that's probably a longer discussion. I know that there's some some people who feel a little strange about it. Uh, but one of the wonderful things about the labyrinth is you you're the way is made for you. You are not deciding where to go, where to turn. You're simply walking. And it's such a wonderful metaphor for obedience and grace. And I try to walk it as slowly as I can. And what I find is that I often do the work of letting things go on the journey to the center and then being able to leave. And sometimes if I have time, I'll retrace my steps and say, what am I picking up on the way out? Uh, so that has been a really powerful thing. I would say I only do that every once in a while. Uh, weather permitting. I mean, I'm not as blessed as you to live in Florida. So there are some times of the year where I cannot go outside uh, risking frostbite and whatnot. So, uh, well, but it's a fair, practice. Though, case, That's true. Fair, you do here. like it's, nuclear heat. <laughs> well, let's just say today, for example, it is 97 degrees outside right now. So uh, we have the, we have the winter summers in Orlando. So I'm just, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it is it's oh, true. No. We, we yeah. have the, it's, it's definitely true. I can walk every single day and it's, it's such a blessing. It absolutely is a blessing. You just make it to the center of the labyrinth and then melt. So I, I, I freeze to death. You would melt. We both have similar endpoints, I guess, but uh, that has been a huge, a really huge practice for me. And, and, you know, it, it retreats, That's times good. of silence, um, when I can have those are very, very important. So, but just the daily, I feel like the way it begins, and I'm not saying everybody needs to be up that early in the morning. There are days that I don't want to be up that early in the morning, but it begins something. And um, when that begins that way, other things can take shape in a healthy and focused way so no i love that and again i'm not i've never done a labyrinth but i one of the things that i've always found helpful well not always just recently the last two years i've been uh waking up in the morning and i just say to myself today is the first day or the beginning of the rest of my life hmm. trust surrender walk the path you know what's the path it's whatever's right in front of me and that's almost what i have so I'm, it makes me curious to actually do a labyrinth so i'll just leave that at that but i, I love that so thank you for that answer you're the yeah, I think you're the first person to actually mention that when I've asked this question. So I, I just like that. So that's why I love doing the podcast. I learn stuff. So thank you. Um, now, here's the hardest question of all. Um, what are two, th two to three books outside of scripture that have shaped you deeply? You're just <laughs> that maybe that you would recommend it. Uh, it can see, imagine somebody else helping them. But like, yes, yeah, so like what's a couple authors or books and, you know, that, that ask, 
Ask really your writer that question. Oh, exactly. My <laughs> oh my gosh. I I find that uh, for me, what has been most helpful is is breadth. So uh, I would say Henry Nowen's book, mm-hmm. Life of the Beloved, has been probably the one that I've returned to the most over the years to to re to re-engage me, to recenter. And I caught it at a time I, when I was an undergrad. Um, that came to me at a time when I really needed it. I really needed to hear that message of being taken, blessed, broken, and given. So that is that was a huge one. Yeah. Uh, the other book that has really had an impact on me over the years is actually a biography uh, called An Arrow Pointed to Heaven. And it's by uh, James Brand Smith. It's one of the first few books that he wrote, and it's a it's a biography of the singer Rich Mullins. And uh, I I have a shelf that's right next to my desk where I keep the books that have been most profoundly affected me. Now there are more than two or three on it, so I'm 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 trimming the list for for our conversation, but. That book I've just come back to over and over again because of of what's in it. The other would be uh, would be a novel. Um, it's a novel by Wendell Berry called Hannah Coulter, and it's the story of a fictional community in Kentucky near Louisville. And the story is about a woman who loses two husbands and her her evolution and her spiritual journey, which Barry doesn't in any way call it that, but just watching this person wrestle with suffering and Wendell Barry, if you're, if your listeners have not read Wendell, he's one of those writers that doesn't waste words. So you finish a sentence and you go, wow, that was a perfect sentence. That was exactly what needed to be here, exactly the way it needed to be said. So just from a just from an art standpoint, it's powerful, but the story is incredibly impactful. And uh, I've tried to share that with as many people as possible. There are more, but those two to three, I think, rise to the surface more often than not. Thank you. Again, uh, Casey's latest book is The Gift of Restlessness, A Spirituality for Unsettled Seasons. Uh, Tell listeners where they can find the book and if they'd like to interact with you, where are the best places to find you these days? Sure. Yeah. So you can find the book anywhere you you purchase books. If your name is on person, it's there. It is also, if you're an audio book person, there is an audio version. Uh, There's also an independent bookstore called Bookshop. Uh, that has an online presence that is a really wonderful place to buy books. Uh, my website is just my name, caseytigret.com. You can find me there. On social media, I'm more often on Instagram than anywhere else, um, sometimes on Facebook, but at caseytigret is where you would find me there as well. I try to keep that very simple. Uh, but if you're interested in, if anyone's interested in talking about seeing a spiritual director or speaking or retreats or anything like that, my website is the, the podcast I host is there. So it's all of that stuff is accessible uh, through the website. All right. Well, Casey, I, I want to thank you for being my guest today. And I also want to thank you for just being a person that's obviously opened themselves up to the work of of God in your own life and are have been blessed. And now you're blessing other people. It's been a real privilege to speak with you today. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you too. Thank you for the hospitality. 
Well, you're welcome. And thank you, everybody, for listening all the way to the end of this week's conversation on the Deep Dive Spirituality Podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope to others. Amen.